Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The studies that examine the underreporting of the deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police are largely conducted over short time periods. A new study, published in The Lancet, covered a longer period, from 1980 to 2018, and found that over 55% of deaths from police violence, or 17,000 deaths, were either misclassified or went unreported. The study from the University of Washington School of Medicine's Institute for Health and Metrics Evaluation also found that police violence was more likely to kill Black Americans than any other group, and that Black people in the U.S. are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police than are whites. The study found that police kill men at much higher rates than women, with just under 31,000 deaths of men and just over 1,400 of women during the same study period. The researchers noted that there are substantial conflicts of interest intrinsic to tracking deaths by police. Coroners are often embedded within police departments and can lack the incentives to determine that deaths are caused by police. According to Fablina Shahara, a co-lead author of the study, quote, inaccurately reporting or misclassifying these deaths further obscures the larger issue of systemic racism that is embedded in many U.S. institutions, including law enforcement. There's a new development in the case of Julius Jones on death row in Oklahoma, whose case we mentioned before. Jones has spent half his life in prison for a crime he's always said he didn't commit. Despite the fact that the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board recommended 3 to 1 that his sentence be commuted, the court has now scheduled his execution for November 18th. Recently, Governor Kevin Stitt delayed making a decision about Jones' commutation until after a clemency hearing on October 26th. If Governor Stitt rejects the board's decision, Jones will face execution next month. On September 13th of this year, Jones' commutation hearing was where, for the first time in over 20 years, his story was shared and heard. It was the first time a person on death row in Oklahoma has received a commutation hearing. Jones' story proves there's overwhelming doubt in his original conviction, given that he has a credible alibi and multiple people have come forward saying that another man confessed to the murder for which Jones was sentenced to death. Jones supporters and opponents of the death penalty in general are asking the public to write urgently to Governor Stitt to accept the Pardon and Parole Board's recommendation now. Though the state of Alabama has the nation's highest death rate from COVID-19 and one of its lowest vaccination rates, it's planning to use federal COVID relief funds to help build three large prisons and renovate several others. The construction project could cost $1.3 billion and would use as much as $400 million in American Rescue Plan funds given to the state. 
That 400 million would be almost 20% of Alabama's federal pandemic relief funds. According to The Guardian, quote, opponents say the funds should address active and ongoing issues from the pandemic, including overwhelmed health systems, outdated school ventilation systems, and economic fallout for small businesses. Laura Hawks, MD, a primary care physician and assistant professor of internal medicine at Medical College of Wisconsin, told The Guardian that less crowding in prisons makes them safer from COVID, but that the solution is decarceration, not building more prisons. The United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights, the globe's leading human rights legal body, ruled that Steve Donziger's house arrest is illegal under international law and requested the U.S. release him. Donziger is a lawyer who led a lawsuit against the Chevron Oil Company on behalf of 30,000 indigenous people and peasant farmers in the Ecuadorian Amazon whose land and water the corporation destroyed by polluting them with oil. Eight years ago, Donziger won a $9.5 billion settlement against Chevron in Ecuadorian courts. It was the largest ever human rights and environmental court decision. Chevron refused to pay. Instead, it concentrated on attacking Donziger in court. In 2019, an industry-friendly judge placed him on house arrest, where he's been ever since. Now, Donziger is in contempt of court because he refused to obey a judge's order to relinquish his phone, laptop, and other electronic devices to Chevron, saying that to do so would violate his client's right to privacy. A judge has denied the UN's request and sentenced Donziger to the maximum sentence of six months in jail. Donziger's lawyers are filing an appeal, but pending the appeal, the judge denied Donziger bail. A judge has denied the UN's request and sentenced Donziger to the maximum sentence of six months in jail. Donziger's lawyers are filing an appeal, but pending the appeal, the judge denied Donziger bail. Donziger now has the dubious choice of remaining on house arrest or begin serving jail time to reduce the time on house arrest. Amazon Watch, an organization that protects the Amazon rainforest, observed, quote, the saga of Chevron's perversion of the law and denial of justice for the people of Ecuador reached a new chapter as Donziger was even denied bail pending appeal of the decision. Our main story this week is a contribution from the folks at Perilous Chronicle. Perilous Chronicle is an independent digital research and media project focusing on prisons, protest, unrest, and repression in the U.S. and Canada. This week, Perilous Chronicle's Ridley Seawood guides us through the Minnesota Sex Offender Program, MSOP, at Moose Lake, and specifically the way the program functions as a shadow prison, using civil commitment to indefinitely detain people deemed potentially dangerous to the public. This feature contains mention of both sexual assault and violence. A movement is growing among detainees inside the Minnesota Sex Offenders Program in Moose Lake, Minnesota. Since mid-August, dozens of detainees held at the Secure Treatment Facility have been meeting in the yard for rallies, speakouts, and peaceful demonstrations. They are calling for an end to their indefinite detention under Minnesota's civil commitment law, which they say is a violation of their constitutional rights. 
The Minnesota Sex Offender Program is administered by the Minnesota Department of Human Services and began its operations at Moose Lake in 1995 as a treatment center for people who have been labeled by the state as, quote, sexually dangerous or as having, quote, sexually psychopathic personalities. These terms are legal determinations assigned to people by a panel of judges during a petition process that the Minnesota Department of Corrections initiates as prisoners approach the end of their prison sentence. Detainees and their advocates refer to the Moose Lake facility as a shadow prison, meaning a prison-like facility where people are civilly committed and held against their will, not based on serving a sentence for a criminal conviction, but as a preventative measure against future offenses they might commit. These shadow prisons and the process of civil commitment used to fill them exist in an arguably gray area of law and remain a constitutionally contentious issue for detainees, their advocates, and lawmakers. Only 20 states in the U.S. have legalized civil commitment, and the Minnesota Sex Offender Program is the largest. Unlike within the criminal legal system, a person being considered for commitment is not presumed innocent until proven guilty during the proceedings, nor do they have the right to trial by jury. Further, unsubstantiated allegations and hearsay are admissible in commitment hearings as the standards of proof are lower than in a criminal court. The following audio is from a phone call between a perilous correspondent and Daniel Wilson, a detainee inside the Moose Lake facility. Wilson is one of the co-founders of Ocean, a detainee-led advocacy group founded and functioning inside the Minnesota Shadow Prison. My name is Daniel A. Wilson. I am one of the co-founders of Ocean. OCEAN is an acronym that stands for Overcoming Corruption, Empowering All Nations. Our world, and unfortunately our government, is full of corruption. This process of overcoming corruption is empowering to all people, despite race, culture, creed, or gender. We are currently abolishing so-called civil commitment in Minnesota, which is, in reality, preventive detention. Our plan is to abolish the current system and reallocate funds and resources toward effective evidence-based solutions to end sexual violence in Minnesota. Taxpayer dollars should be used to protect us from violence, especially sexual violence. However, Minnesota taxpayers have thrown away at least $1.5 billion over a 26-year period on a scheme that has done virtually nothing to protect the public. In the general sense, civil commitment is mental health treatment in a high-secure facility. Civil commitment happens to a person who is so mentally ill they are a danger to themselves or others, and therefore they have to be confined to a secure hospital. However, this is all a ploy in Minnesota. This is why we call it a shadow prison, a term coined by our comrade Galen Bowman from ajustfuture.org. In Minnesota, they have what's called sex offender civil commitment. This label is misleading, however, because it implies that everyone committed has a sex offense conviction. Minnesota detains more men and women per capita than any other state. For every 1 million people that live in Minnesota, 131 of them are held here at the so-called civil commitment facility until they are dead. Since the opening of the institution in 1995, there has been approximately 845 commitments. 14 of those were eventually released and 88 have died, leaving 743 still detained. The life expectancy at the institution is about 65 years old. This is likely due to the high stress environment and the lack of medical services. Right now, the death rate hovers around one death every 43 days. We expect the death rate to continue to rise as the population gets increasingly older. Although the vast majority of detainees do have a sex offense conviction, this is not the underlying basis for commitment. 12% of the detained have no criminal record at all. The shadow prison is governed by the Minnesota Department of Human Services. Their job is to treat mental illness, not punish people for crimes. 
Therefore, the common denominator among the detained is medical, usually a misplaced or even an invented mental health diagnosis, not a criminal record. It is fundamental to our notions of a free society that we do not imprison citizens because we fear that they might commit a crime in the future. However, the Minnesota Department of Human Services has tremendous power to detain people, not for what they have done, but for what they might do. Daniel Larson, for instance, was committed when he was only 15 years old, under an older civil commitment law. When the 1995 law passed, he was transferred under the new commitment law. During a July 18th rally held by the NMSOP Coalition on the steps of the Minnesota State Capitol in St. Paul, a message was shared from Daniel Larson. My name is Daniel Leland Larson. When I was 15 years old, authorities in the state of Minnesota locked me up in a maximum security facility. I have been here now for over 43 years. I have never been convicted of a crime. I am being confined because the state had made a prediction that I might commit a crime in the future. Unless something changes, I expect to die here. When I was only 10 years old, I witnessed my mother and her girlfriend being murdered. Uh, he shot her at point blank. I then testified about it in court. I was then sent to live with my grandparents. I was angry, sad, lonely, and confused. I didn't know how to process the murder of my mother and her girlfriend. I needed help, but I had no one. Uh, the night of the murder, I was at the old downtown courthouse being questioned by a police detective who was asking me what kind of a handgun was used to murder my mother and her girlfriend. I did not know one handgun from another as a 10-year-old boy, so instead of checking with ballistics or asking me if I would look at a book with photos of handguns in it, the detective pulled out his revolver, almost shoving it in my face, scaring me and asking me if it looked like this, which was inappropriate. My grandfather had not gotten to the courthouse yet, otherwise I don't think he would have uh, did that. In 1976, I was evaluated at the security hospital in St. Peter, Minnesota. I was 15 years old. On September 27th of 77, Judge James Knudsen ordered that I be committed indefinitely. I was never allowed to go to court to defend myself. I was committed anyway, and at the vulnerable age of 16, I was sent to a, a maximum security facility with adult men without being certified as an adult, which is illegal. I, I have now been here for over 43 plus years, and there is no end in sight. I have never been found guilty of a crime, uh, nor have I ever been charged. If you were to take the same test that I took at 15 years old, would you pass them, or could the state of Minnesota commit you also? How about your children? Would they pass them? There are about 90 others just like him who are innocent of any crime. The name of the system, the Minnesota Sex Offender Program, implies that everyone held there is a sex offender, but this is not the case. An offender is a person who has committed a crime. This is determined upon conviction or when the court accepts a guilty plea. So a sex offender is someone who has been convicted of a crime of a sexual nature. But to become detained to the shadow prison, a person is not required to be convicted of any crime, including a sex offense. The name of the program is intentionally misleading. It has effectively redirected the public's attention from the unconstitutional scheme of so-called civil commitment in Minnesota. Most detainees are convicted sex offenders. However, they served a prison sentence before they were committed. Sex crimes are some of the most horrible crimes a person can commit. But here's the problem. 
the intent of the prison system is to punish those who made a conscious decision to commit a crime, whereas civil commitment is meant for those who are so mentally incompetent they lack the volitional control to be safe in the community. State authorities want it both ways. They claim that the subject knows what they are doing and must be punished for the choices they have made, so they are sent to prison. Then, once the sentence is over, the state makes a new claim that the person is mentally incompetent and cannot be held responsible for their choices, so they must be detained so that they won't hurt others. Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Sandra Gardbring explained this perfectly when she said, I quote, To allow the state to first choose the criminal sanction, which requires a finding of a specific state of mind, and when that sanction is completed, to choose another sanction, which requires a finding of the opposite state of mind, is a mockery of justice, unquote. Ocean did a survey in April 2020, and we found that 74% of the detainees believe it will take public, judicial, or divine intervention before anything changes. 25% of the population believes that they will die here no matter what happens. James Berg, the shadow prison deputy director, admitted that the program cannot be completed. Almost 90 men have died trying anyway. With the exception of James Berg, most shadow prison officials still peddle the story that if detained individuals participate in treatment, they could be released. However, after decades of trying, most have lost all hope, and now only 1% believe that participating with the captors will get them out. African Americans make up about 6% of the free population in Minnesota, but make up 12% of the population within the shadow prison. African Americans are twice as likely to get civilly committed than white people. Of the 14 released from this institution in 26 years, one was African American. Gay men are also twice as likely to be committed. Over half of the population at the shadow prison is of the LGBT community, including 23 transgender women. The Department of Human Services attempts to determine who is dangerous by evaluating people. They can evaluate whoever they want, even if the subject refuses to cooperate with the process. They make a determination on whether or not the person is sexually dangerous based on faulty tests called actuarial tools. To get confined for life, not only is there no need for a criminal conviction, there is no need to prove that the person is out of control or physically violent. Hearsay is admissible, and the innocent person considered for commitment is not allowed a jury trial. The only requirement for indefinite confinement to the shadow prison is allegations that the person was at least emotionally harmful to someone on at least two occasions. The shadow prison is not an accredited treatment program. One Minnesota judge, R.A. Randall, opined, quote, I can no longer accept the argument that civil commitment is medical treatment. The allusions to treatment are a guise to justify the detention. Even the personnel at the facility are clear that confinement is the guiding force, not medical treatment, unquote. A report released by the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 2019 shows that those who have committed sex offenses are much less likely than people convicted of other offenses to commit another crime. People released from sentences for homicide or robbery, for instance, are more than twice as likely to be rearrested for the same crime. The likelihood of arrest for another rape or sexual assault is less than 2% in the first year out of prison. Ronald Sullivan and other scholars from Harvard Law School have called the Minnesota Civil Commitment Statute a, quote, punitive scheme that responds excessively to moral panic, unquote. In his dissenting opinion in 2014, Judge R.A. Randall asserted, quote, MSOP is preventive detention. 
It bears an eerie resemblance to the old Stalinist Russia winter resort for political dissidents at the Gulag Archipelago and the Japanese Relocation Act during World War II. At least they were honest, not disguised as remedial treatment, unquote. Dr. Gregory J. Van Rybert stated that it is illogical to interpret the MSOP as nothing more than an expensive preventive detention program, a Potemkin village and not a meaningful treatment program. The system is not bona fide. The American Psychiatric Association said that civil commitment is an unacceptable misuse of psychiatry. In mid-January 2021, 10 men, including myself, went on a hunger strike and we demanded a clear path home from this facility. While we were still on strike, our supporters in the free world went to the home of Jody Harpstead, the commissioner of the Department of Human Services, to speak with her about the inhumane practice of so-called civil commitment in Minnesota. After 14 days without food, the hunger strikers agreed to eat again if they could meet with Harpstead's agents to talk about creating a clear path home. In addition, they also agreed to have conversations with our supporters in the free world who came to be known as the NMSOP Coalition. It did not work. We were not afforded a clear path home. The Department of Human Services and the shadow prison officers made promises that they never fulfilled. This only solidified our assertions made about the dishonest and unethical practices of this institution. We kept our word. We originally agreed to end the hunger strike if they helped us create a clear path home. Harpstead made a choice not to do this. So on Independence Day 2021, we triggered our second hunger strike as promised, but this time 40 detainees participated. On July 11, 2021, the coalition came to the Moose Lake facility for a honk-in protest to show their support. Stop the death! Stop the death! Stop the death! Stop the death! Shut it down! Shut it down! Shut it down! 87 years. 87 years. This was very inspiring to the entire population. On July 18, 2021, about 70 of our supporters from all parts of the country, including Nebraska, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, and of course Minnesota, came to St. Paul to call for the abolishment of the shadow prison in Minnesota. After two hunger strikers went to the hospital and another collapsed from exhaustion, we called for an end to the hunger strike. It is a basic principle of the First Amendment that each person should decide for himself or herself the ideas and beliefs deserving of expression. A function of free speech is to invite dispute. Speech is often provocative and challenging. It may strike at prejudices and preconceptions and have profound unsettling effects as it presses for acceptance of an idea. That is why freedom of speech is protected against censorship or punishment. The alternative would lead to standardization of ideas. We began writing the Ocean Newsletters in August of 2019 to expose the abusive practices of this institution. Almost immediately, we began experiencing retaliation. By June 2020, I was threatened with prison time by the institution. Most of the detainees at the shadow prison despise the place. But when facility staff come around, the detained soften their narrative because they are afraid of the consequences. Sickened by this timidity, on August 3, 2021, I verbally expressed my desire to, quote, end MSOP, which I asserted loudly from the galley. I was promptly punished and was forced to remain on my unit for seven days. We then began to organize peaceful assemblies and rallies within the facility. 
between August 16th and September 27th, there was a major attack on our First Amendment rights by facility staff. And MSOP necklaces, armbands, bracelets, posters, and t-shirts were officially considered contraband. On August 13th, 120 individuals met up in the yard at the Moose Lake facility to chant, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. We continue to orchestrate multiple rallies within the Moose Lake Shadow Prison. On August 29th, the coalition went to the St. Peter's Shadow Prison facility for another honk-in protest. On September 2nd, 2021, I was sent to a disciplinary unit for punishment for leading rallies and protests within the facility. This is where I remain today. Other organizers were forced to move to different locations throughout the compound in an attempt to slow our progress, and other punishments were also imposed. But the assemblies continue. On September 20th, about 10 men gathered in the yard and refused to switch in when yards closed in protest of the shadow prison. On September 22nd, two other men did the same. I am now scheduled for an HRU hearing on October 5th, 2021, for speaking out. According to David Benke of the NMSOP Coalition, Daniel was not transferred to prison following the HRU hearing. For Wilson and other detainees and outside advocates, not only does Minnesota's civil commitment program fail to protect the community from sexual harm, it also fails to protect people inside the program from harm at the hands of staff. Many of the detained are survivors of sexual assault. In fact, many have been sexually assaulted by the staff at the Shadow Prison. Paul Mayfield, therapist at the Shadow Prison, claims that he has known of hundreds of examples. One recent sexual assault was from a Michelle Brownfield, a forensic evaluator at the Shadow Prison, who was recently charged with two counts of third-degree criminal sexual conduct for sexually assaulting two clients at the Shadow Prison. Our OCEAN survey shows that 84% of the men at this Shadow Prison want their interactions with staff audio and or video recorded to keep staff accountable. To protect us, shadow prison operatives should provide this option, but they choose not to. I was sexually assaulted before I came to the shadow prison. It was traumatic. But my experience and my emotional reaction to that experience does not change the fact that Minnesota is failing to prevent sexual violence in Minnesota. In fact, they are harming survivors of sexual assault in more ways than one. First of all, Minnesota has been known to cut funding from sexual violence prevention programs so that they can fund the $100 million annual budget for this civil commitment scheme, even though they know it does nothing to protect the public. They also know that programs like Minnesota Circles of Support and Accountability are effective in reducing sexual recidivism by 88%. It is estimated that Minnesota taxpayers have thrown away at least $1.5 billion over a 26-year period on a program that has done virtually nothing to protect the public. We are going to stop civil commitment and increase public safety by abolishing the shadow prison of Minnesota and reallocating the $100 million to a survivor-focused blueprint for ending sexual violence. To hear from other detainees held at the Minnesota Shadow Prison, and for more details on the fierce struggle developing inside, head over to PerilousChronicle.com. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. 
Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.